Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a showery autumn day in the capital is Maria Franzoni. Maria is the owner and director of Maria Franzoni Limited, a UK-based speaker and advisory bureau with a global reputation working with some of the most renowned thinkers and practitioners in the world today. Maria, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Um, Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure, Maria, welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. I'm sure you'll agree. But for you and your business, just how has it affected you and your operations? It's been a huge uh, change for us, actually, because to be honest with you, in January of this year, I was predicting a fantastic year. It was going to be the best year ever for us. And we are in the business of supporting uh, conference meetings and uh, corporate meetings and events. So we provide speakers for conferences, events, and also internal meetings. And as you can imagine, we've been incredibly disruptive because people aren't allowed to get together. Mm. So it's uh, been a huge change for us. And with regard to the events industry, there's a lot of concern that even when there is a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue, as it were, the the lack of consumer confidence and the anxiety that's come about as a result of the pandemic, people maybe being hesitant to get together in large groups, it's going to cause something of a COVID hangover for the sector for quite some time yet. Yes, there's sort of two types of people in the sector. There's those who are absolutely desperate to get together with other real live beings and will, mm. you know, will do anything that they can to do that. And then there are those absolutely that are uh, reluctant because they might have some health issues, they might have lost someone, they might have been affected themselves. So there's two types of people for sure. I think there's going to continue to be a sort of virtual element or an online element mm. going on in the future. And what would you say this experience of adapting to the new COVID reality has taught you in your leadership capacity? Do you know what? I'm very lucky because I work with some amazing people. I was able to reach out and get some top advice, which really saved me and uh, really helped me with my team as well. And the best advice I had was, you know, make a plan for the next 100 days. Really be sure that you know what you're going to do, because in uncertainty, if you know what you've got, you can do and what you can control, it'll give you some certainty. And I was also advised to communicate, communicate, communicate so that my team knew what was going on. And that's been so good and such helpful advice. So mm. that's, been my, that's what's happened for us uh, in our organization. I think there's something very important to take away from that. The first thing being that learning from others is one of the best things that you can do um, as a young and aspiring business person. Um, for those younger generations of listeners that may be tuning into this with that entrepreneurial spirit, it is such a good thing to seek out mentors and seek out guidance because 
learning from other people is one of the best things you can do. We're not lone wolves, even in leadership positions. And there's always more that we can take on board, either by experience or by speaking to others, taking things on. And that is so, so important, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think at any age, it's always good to have somebody else that you can uh, talk to and have some help with. Because a leadership is actually an incredibly lonely role. It's, mm. it's very hard to be a leader. It, it sort of buck stops with you, really. It does, doesn't it? And leaders have come under an immense amount of pressure during this time as well, because they've had to shoulder the responsibility of in keeping people inspired and motivated, but also reassured among all of the uncertainty and all of the worry during this time. And it can be very lonely at the top, can't it? Because when you're in the leadership position, you're at the top of the tree of the business, there isn't anybody above you to refer to as such. So you have to look externally. You have to look at mentors and other business leaders to try and get some sort of inspiration of your own, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And also you have to lead yourself and motivate yourself and keep mm. yourself in the right mindset because you're also dealing with uncertainty, you're also dealing with disruption and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So not only have you got to keep strong for others, you've got to keep strong for yourself. You do. You do. That's um, absolutely right. And just from a mental health point of view, because that has been thrust back into the uh, the limelight by the whole pandemic situation, just how have you found the people that you work with holding up during this time from that side of things? Well, what we did is we sort of changed our focus. Um, we regularly, like you doing a podcast and, and sharing knowledge and help, we, we changed the focus of our podcast and focused much more on the mental health and also the physical health and shared that not only internally, but also externally with our clients and prospects. Mm. And to me, it was very good because I was getting therapy every time I spoke to one of the, the speakers um, on the podcast, but also it allowed then me to ask some questions and show some vulnerability mm. and support my team and, and, and other people by asking those questions, you know, help, what can we do? Mm. Collaboration has certainly been one of the few positives to, uh, to come out of this. And I also recall earlier on um, in the uh, the discussion, Marie, that you said that um, planning for the future is one of the best things you've been able to do during this time to just keep things ticking over. Has it been difficult to be as proactive as you possibly can be, just given the amount of uncertainty that there is? Because the short term future is now no longer maybe the next year it's more like the next week or the next month isn't it given everything that's going on and the changing circumstances um so regularly yes it is and sometimes you have to sort of shut off and, and stop listening to what's going on outside and focus more it's been harder to focus more for sure um mm. yet you do have to plan shorter and, and that's interesting because the advice i was given was to plan for 100 days rather than to plan for the year mm-hmm. and uh, that was actually very good advice and to say, you know, where do you want to get to in, in the next 100 days? And that was really just to stabilize the business, first of all, before you started planning again. But everything, the lead times and everything have got much shorter. You're absolutely right. And of course, you developed experience pre-pandemic working with some of the most renowned thinkers and practitioners within the, uh, the world today. Um, are there any examples of people that perhaps you've worked with or maybe in your earlier career that you've looked up to that have been a source of inspiration to you as you've sort of gone through life? Well, several, actually. Um, the person who's been really significant in helping us through this current pandemic actually has been Kevin Gaskell, mm. um, who is he's known for turning around organizations and, and businesses uh, who are in crisis. And really, we have been in crisis in th- through this. Um, and he was he's the man with the 100-day plan. Uh, and also, I suppose, um, neuroscientist Bo Lotto, who specializes in uncertainty and how to deal with it and how 
had to be able to to cope and, and not panic, I suppose, in a way. Um, and one of the most inspirational people I met, who sadly is no longer with us, and I couldn't call on uh, on this occasion, but uh, it was very inspiring, was uh, Neil Armstrong. Mm. Um, simply, simply because he gave credit so much to everybody else. He was so humble about his achievements. It, mm. For him, it was always about everybody else rather than him. It is very much a team effort, isn't it? And I think sometimes leaders can go wrong by singling out individuals for praise rather than looking at the collective because it is just about as much about the team as it is about the person leading it and also every individual cog within the larger machine isn't it if we uh, sort of use that metaphor absolutely um without the team was it the teamwork makes the dream work or something mm. like that i can't remember what the saying is but yes team is vital it certainly is now uh, maria um correct me if i'm wrong but um i am under the impression that it's uh, 13 years now isn't it since you've owned uh, your own business if you could go back to around about 2007 when um, your company first started, armed with the knowledge that you have now, and this might seem a little bit of a mean question, is there anything that you would do differently? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, I would uh, manage cash differently, for sure. Um, I was a bit of a spender. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I changed my ways a few years ago. But definitely I would manage, um, and there's a, there's a great book called Profit First, which I wish I had read, um, that basically says put the profit aside first before you then spend anything so you know what you've got left, decide what profit percentage you want to make. So yes, that's that one thing I would have done very differently. Mm. And certainly time back in with the uh, the learning side of things, looking at books and studying as well is another one of the best things that you can do as an aspiring business person or entrepreneur because um we can learn from experience we can learn from other people but there's a lot of resources like that out there as well and um and certainly by reading we can take in a lot more information than perhaps we can do by sort of flicking through um internet articles i love books i absolutely love books so you're speaking my language here and i've mm. always got a pile of books that I'm, re- I'm, usually, I'm usually reading five at a time but yes i think brilliant some amazing business books out there there certainly are absolutely right. And um, just for those younger generations of people that are listening to uh, this, Maria, um, given all of your experience in the business world now, some of these people may well be a little bit downbeat by the current COVID situation because of the impact on the economy and how it's hit their employment prospects. So what would your message be to them to really pick them up and get them on the road to success at this time? I think it's always to be networking and communicating with other people because in doing so, um, not isolating yourself, in doing so, opportunities appear. It's incredible. The more people you talk to, the more people you mm. connect with, the more you you, you you know you communicate and learn from others. Um, opportunities are, are there. They really are. Um, you know, 2007, when I started my business, was in recession. Okay, we're in recession again now, but many mm. businesses have started out of recession. And uh, just, just be open and optimistic. I think if you, if you have the right mindset, opportunities will absolutely appear. So many business leaders that we've had on the show have said very similar, the sense that this period of time is almost like going back to when they first started out in business because they're having to go back to basics, go back to the roots and rethink things just to try and seize on the opportunities that are there because out of adversity does come opportunity, absolutely. And it's the innovation, the rethinking, the adapting, which is going to help business succeed through this. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Certainly is, Maria. And I would like to uh, talk about the future as well in just a little bit more detail before we do wrap things up on today's show, just because I am conscious that we are running short of time. Um, Given the announcement made by the Prime Minister last week, uh, we know that we're going to have to continue to grapple with the new normal for some time yet, perhaps until the end of March, perhaps later, perhaps sooner. We don't know. Um, But over that period of time, as we're getting used to that, what is it that you and your business are really hoping to achieve? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year? At the moment, we're working very hard with our speakers to help them to adapt, as you say, to this new normal and to be as relevant and helpful to businesses as they can be because with their knowledge and expertise, they can help businesses get back on their feet. So we're trying to help them. Where would I like us to be this time next year? I hope we will have helped lots of speakers to help lots of businesses. That would be really wonderful. But I also hope that we hang on to some of the things that we've experienced in this horrible time. Um, so the, you know, the opportunity to spend more time with family, the opportunity to spend more time sort of reflecting on what's important and what's not important. Uh, the fact that we've actually managed to experience nature again, where there's been you know, no traffic, no, no aeroplanes, very little pollution. It's been incredible. Um, and also the support and empathy that people have been giving to each other. I hope we hold on to that. There are a lot of positives that we do need to hold on to, certainly coming out of this pandemic. The uh, the collaboration side of things, the national unity, that spirit that's come about as a result of this. So that's certainly something that hopefully we can hold on to going forward. And it's going to be an interesting time for business as well. It's going to have to continue to adapt, continue to innovate and continue to work together to sort of seize on the opportunities that will be there. Um, I have to say, Maria, um, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today and also really enlightening experience here you share your views with us and I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in the next year to catch up and have you back on the program just to see how things are uh, coming along that would be amazing let's see if I manage to predict the future let's certainly hope so I'm really really hoping and keeping my fingers crossed that there will be some positive news to uh, to share um, at the point where we get to speak again and in the meantime as well please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because there are still a great many variables in all of this so let's just Keep our fingers crossed, as I say, and just hope that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here. You too. Thank you. I'd also reiterate that last message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make such a difference in saving lives and getting us out of this dreadful period. Um, It was a real pleasure to welcome Maria Fransoni onto today's programme, owner and director of eponymous business Maria Fransoni Limited. Coming up next on today's show, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former education secretary and incumbent leader Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. That interview will be coming up shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage 
obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well.
How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of, 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.